lesson in Isaiah comes from uh, Isaiah chapter 39 through 44 and is primarily about the subject of idolatry. The prophet Isaiah is sent to talk to the nation about their idolatry and what's going to happen and how bad it is. Uh, and today's movie clip, you know, idolatry is basically, you know, worshiping something other than God, you know, putting all your uh, time and energy and thought into something other than God, just like uh, Lowell does on wings today. All right. Let's do that one. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. So turn in your your Bible to Isaiah 39. And we last left, uh, last week, we left uh, Isaiah and King Hezekiah in Jerusalem on a very positive note. King Hezekiah and Isaiah had turned to the Lord and prayed. Remember, Assyria brought their big army up there, and they had them surrounded, and they were going to destroy them. But God intervened because of Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah and Isaiah in Jerusalem turned to God in prayer. And Isaiah said, because you have prayed, because you've trusted God, he has saved and blessed Jerusalem. But the threat of Babylon still remains. Don't forget, Isaiah had already predicted that sometime in the future, if Israel and Judah had turned to idolatry, away from God and to idolatry, that eventually the nation of Babylon would come and destroy Jerusalem. So that's kind of on the horizon as we see Jerusalem temporarily saved here. The threat is still there. And we see in chapter 39, pridefully Hezekiah invites the king of Babylon. At that point, Babylon was not a world power. It seemed like they were no threat. But he, he invites the king of Hezekiah to come to Jerusalem. And when he's there, again, pride swells up in King Hezekiah. And he takes him in to see the temple and lets him see the treasury with all the gold and silver and priceless articles in there. Look at this. Uh, Merodach Baladan, the son of Balan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. So he, he came to uh, Jerusalem, and Hezekiah was pleased in verse 2 to show him all his treasure house. Here's a hint. When you get an evil king that comes to your house, don't show him the combination to your safe and, and what's in there. But that's what he did. He let him see all this. And so naturally, this guy registers this. Hmm. Can't wait to come back with an army and take all of that. Uh, and so uh, verse 6, Isaiah, knowing what he's done, comes to the king Hezekiah and says, that was not a good idea. And by the way, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, all this stuff that you had such pride about, all this gold and silver and treasure 
that you are boasting about and showing. The day will come when the army from Babylon will come and everything you showed that guy will be carried off to Babylon, looted. Nothing shall be left. And even, as, even worse, your sons, your descendants will be carried off into captivity and they shall become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, that word for officials in the palace is a real nice word, but it actually literally is the Hebrew word for eunuch. So what's he saying? He said, in the future, your great-great-great-grandsons and all the royal family, all the nobility of Jerusalem will be taken into captivity uh, they will be uh, made eunuchs and they will serve as servants in the palace of the king of Babylon. And of course that happened in 605 and you can see that in the book of Daniel. Daniel was one of the great, great, great grandsons of Hezekiah and he, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, remember those guys? All those guys were uh, young royal guys in uh, nobility in Jerusalem, and they all got carried off just as Isaiah predicted. Babylon uh, would come and take Jerusalem and eventually destroy it in 586 B.C. So, vanity of vanities, right? What you had all your pride in, what you cherished will be taken away. So, Isaiah says, uh, days are coming, so that, that's scary. Now, chapter 4, 40, excuse me, 40 through 44, comes right after that and is connected to this prophecy. Why will they be destroyed? Why will they be carried into Babylon, into captivity? Idolatry. Idolatry. The greatest of all sins. The Ten Commandments, when Moses gave them the Ten Commandments, the first and second commands were the most important ones. All the other commands depended on those. You violate that and everything else you've broken. Do you remember what they are, one and two? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols. And, of course, that is what Judah, Jerusalem did that's why God literally raised up the Babylonian army to come and destroy Jerusalem, which historically, of course, happened just as he said it was. So idolatry, the greatest sin, what is that? How would you define it? Anything that appeals to you, anything that you put in the place of God, anything that appeals to you such that it takes the place of God and becomes more important to you than God. The idol captures the mind, occupies your attention, fills your thoughts, your fantasies, and consumes your desires. Idolatry. The human heart, unfortunately, this is the truth, the human heart is a factory for idols. We all, from time to time, to varying degrees, sit around and dream of being rich or powerful or being great at this or great at that or being popular or having this and that that I don't have. We all have done that. The human heart is a factory for idols. That's the danger. 
That's why the warnings in the Bible are so important, so vital for us to pay attention, attention to. Uh, and you're saying, I wonder what my idol is. Well, just think about what do you dream of? What do you fantasize about? Uh, what would you do anything to get? What do you plan and think about all the time? What occupies your time and thinking? And, of course, when you look at world religions, which has always fascinated me, I've, I've uh, taken a great amount of time, more than I probably should, to study world religions. And I uh, even have uh, spoken and taught on comparative religion, all the major world religions. And it's very interesting. All of those have a lot in common in the sense that man, they're man-made religions to take the place of the one true God. Idolatry is the root of all these world religions in which mankind literally invents a God of his own choosing. What works for me? What do I want God to be? You see? And so they invent these world religions, and you can, you can find this historically, that the root of all of them, uh, all world religions were invented by the human race to replace God, the true God, with a God or gods that are appealing to them, appealing to people. Thus, a genesis of world religions is idolatry. And biblically, what or who is behind all these religions that people are feverishly about the world, spending all their time worshiping something or trying to do something on their own terms? What's behind all that? The Bible tells us it's the adversary of God. Just a few passages. Deuteronomy 32, 16, Moses said to the people, the previous generation that worshiped the golden calf they provoke God by worshiping other gods which were demons. Demons. Psalm 106, talking about the pagan idolater, says, when they made sacrifices to idols, they were actually sacrificing to demons. And in the New Testament, Paul says to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10, 20, talking about the nations, the, the pagan uh, Gentiles, the things the pagan Gentiles worship are demons and not gods at all. We are in a spiritual warfare in this world. God and the adversary of God. And when people make up their own religion, they're replacing the true God with gods of their own choosing. And behind that, is the adversary of God. And today we maybe cannot relate to all the old movies. You know, you see the old movies where the guys are bowing down to some goofy-looking statue, and you go, I don't, I don't get that. Why would they do that? That's ridiculous. Those people are idiots. I would never do that. But Jesus revealed the 21st century idols of materialism in, in many of his uh, stories. And I wanted you to take a second before we get into Isaiah in Mark 10, one of the famous passages that people, you've probably heard all your life, the story here in Mark 10. If you have your Bible, turn to me or I'll read it to you. Uh, in Mark 10, uh, Jesus is on a journey towards Jerusalem. And as he, he was walking along, 
a man, a rich young ruler, we're told in Matthew's account, uh, the same stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew tells us he's a rich young ruler and a synagogue official. So this guy's got it all together. He's young, he's rich, he's popular, he's religious. Everybody looks at him like he's a great guy, and I'm sure in his own mind he is. But deep in the recesses of his mind, he knows there's something lacking, like we all do. We know, everybody knows there's something else besides the stuff in this world. And so he comes to Jesus, seeing the, the incredible works that Jesus does and the and the incredible teaching that Jesus has. He has great respect for him. And he comes up to Jesus, and he knelt before him, and he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice he said, what shall I do? He thinks there's something he can do. He can accomplish it. Give me a task. Give me a law to keep, right? Well, Jesus, uh, very wisely, as he always does, he being omniscient, knows what's in this guy's heart. He knows what this guy's problem is. He knows what this guy's idol is. This guy thinks he's keeping the law and he's working hard in his religion. And so Jesus says, verse 19, you know the commandments, don't murder do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So don't kill anybody, don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. And the guy gets a smile on his face and he says, great, I do all that, I keep those, I knew it. But did you notice one that Jesus left out? Number one the most important one Jesus left out because he knows that, in fact, is the guy's problem. That's what he needs to overcome. And, of course, that first commandment, shall have no other gods before me, this man had a God that he had put before him, which is his possessions, his property, his money. Now, having money is the greatest thing ever, the Bible talks about, you know, it's a blessing from God. Enjoy it. Praise God for it. So if you're rich, fantastic. Great for you. Thank the Lord every morning. But the problem is, Paul says it well in 1 Timothy 6, he says it's the love of money which destroys a person. The love of it. You put that in place of God. You're consumed by that. And that was this man's idol. And so Jesus, after the guy says, I, I keep all those commandments. Jesus, well, there's one more. By the way, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. He could have just said, one thing you lack, give up your idol." And maybe to you or me, it's a different idol. We all have something that we need to be careful with, that we spend too much time thinking about, that if we don't watch out, it can take the place of God. We all have got that or many things, 
Like I said, the human heart is a factory for idols. But that was this guy's idol. So Jesus said, get rid of it. He could have just said, get rid of your idol and come follow me. But obviously he's right because look what happens. Verse 22, the guy says, at these, at these words of Jesus, give up your stuff, his face fell. And he went away grieved. Why? Because he couldn't give up his stuff. He had a lot of stuff. He loved it. And he couldn't give it up. That was his idol. So he went away. And Jesus, looking around, says to his disciples, and the disciples are baffled because they see a guy like this, and they'd always been taught, as we just said earlier, that money was a blessing from God. And if someone had it, and they had good health and, and you know, money and the whole deal, it was because God blessed them because they were good people. So when the disciples see this guy go off, they go, whoa. If that guy, everybody thought he was a wonderful guy, a religious guy, he's the head of the synagogue, blessed by God with health and wealth, he's got everything. If that guy can't be saved, then who can? Good question. Let's see what Jesus says. Jesus, looking around, said, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, back where he said how hard it will be for those who are wealthy, he could have just as well said how hard it will be for those who are sinners to enter the kingdom of God. Because that's, that's what he was literally saying. How hard it is for sinners to enter the kingdom of God. And, it's, and by the way, this uh, easier for a camel, what did, what did he do? He took the smallest opening, the eye of a needle, and the largest animal in Israel, the camel, to make a point. The largest animal that you know and the smallest opening a sinner going to heaven, a sinner's got as much a chance to go into heaven as that camel's got going through that eye of the needle. It's a good comparison. Good image, isn't it? So they say, then who can be saved? Verse 26, who can be saved? We're all doomed. And Jesus, looking around, said, you're right. With men it is impossible, but not with God. This is the gospel. You cannot save yourself. You cannot make up your own religion. You cannot come up with some other God God besides the real God. So God must intervene and send his son into the world to save us. What was impossible, what we could not do for ourselves, save ourselves, God has done. Jesus came into the world and accomplished what we could not accomplish. So the guy said, what must I do? And the answer is, you can't do anything. God has already done it. He sent Jesus to die on the cross. Not, men's impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible 
with God. So we can relate to that today. I know I can. So what is, what are our idols? What is the appeal? In our heart of hearts, we desperately search for happiness, meaning, significance, purpose in life. And if we refuse, if we reject the one true God, there's a vacuum there that's got to be filled. And in their pride, people fill it with everything else that's in the world. And they even make up their own religions as they have done historically. So the appeal, it must be something very appealing to idolatry. Well, obviously, it's a God of our own choosing. It's an attempt to object, objectify or quantify God, in other words, to manipulate or control him. My favorite thing is, you know, people, you know, read something in the Bible and they go, you know, like the wrath of God or the judgment of God or something about hell, and they go, well, I don't believe that. My God would never do that. What are they saying? They're obje- they want to objectify God and, and quantify him. My God is like this. He's this big and that and this. You see? That's what they want to do. In their pride, they want it to be about my work, work ethic. I can merit it. I can accomplish it. I can do this. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know all the stuff I've done? I can accomplish anything. Give me a task. You know, I think if Jesus had said, you need to climb the Matterhorn, he'd have gone and bought mountain climbing shoes and one of those cool deal with suspenders and what are those things called? And he'd have gone over there and tried to climb. What is that? It's the vanity. It's the pride that I can earn it. I can merit it. I'm good enough. And Jesus is saying, you're not. You need the Lord. Idolatry. So back to Isaiah. Isaiah 40. Isaiah is going to say, even though I just said you're going to be taken as captives to Babylon, the first 11 verses here in chapter 40, He says, take comfort, be comforted. That's going to happen. It's going to be tragic, but it's a judgment of God, and it will all be taken care of. God will bring you back and restore you. In verse 1 through 11 there in chapter 40, he promises it, and as he says there in in verse 8, he says, the word of God stands forever. I promised it, and it will come about. And then verse 12 through 26 he begins to talk, lay the case for the insanity of idolatry, the power of God, the sovereignty of God as the creator and ruler of all things. He says, who has measured the waters? He, who has taken all the vast oceans? You know, my, I think my dad was on a, he's a navigator on a troop transport ship in the Pacific. And I said, well, how was that? And he said, well, the closest thing I had before that was White Rock Lake. <laughs> so that Pacific Ocean is big. <laughs> I can just see a, that boat zigzagging all around the Pacific. <laughs> but he says here, God 
can hold all the waters, all the oceans in his hand and measure them. He created them. He marks everything off. He's calculated, etc. God is in control. Only God knows. Verse 18, therefore, to whom then will you liken God? Who can you take and say, I compare this God or that idol or this person to God? No one. God is unique. God is all-powerful. What likeness will you compare him with? There is none. I mean, when you look at verse 19, idols that people make with their own hands. A goldsmith plates it with gold, a silversmith fashions stuff on it. They select a tree that, you know, it's a joke. They can't make something that looks like this incredible God who's bigger than the creation. It's insane. Who is like God? That's a great question, isn't it? And he goes on to, to say that, you know, in idolatry's insanity and take comfort, though, because in spite of yourselves, God's going to bring you back. Look at verse 31. Great passage. Chapter 40, verse 31. Great passage. Those who stay with God, believe in God, have faith in God, who hold the course, stay the course. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Isn't that great? Isn't that beautiful? There's a lot of passages uh, in the Old Testament that, that say that basically the same thing. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. What's he saying when he says, Wait on the Lord or be still? He's saying, You're going to get impatient. When times get tough, when things are hard, when they're suffering, the tendency, the temptation is to give up, to quit, or to lose your faith or whatever. And he's saying, no, no, hang in there. Believe. Trust God. It's just a matter of timing. God's promises will be fulfilled. So if you wait on the Lord, he'll give you new strength, and he'll lift you up and carry you to heaven. Right? Totally awesome. Uh, and then chapter 41, again, continues to compare the true God to idols. It's like laying out a court case, and he's saying there's nothing like him and all the things that God can do compared to these ridiculous idols that can't do anything. Look at verse 21, chapter 41, 21. Like a court case. He says, okay, you, you cynics, you critics, Present your case. Lay it out there. Bring forward your strong arguments. Let's hear what you have to say. What can you put in the place of God? Let's consider this. Verse 23, declare the things that are going to come afterward. Oh, you, you think you're God or you think your God is the real God? Tell us about the future. What's going to happen? You've got something like, you know, hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of predictions, prophecies in the Bible 
Guess how many of them have come true, percentage-wise? Good, Jeff. <laughs> That's right, 100%. And so the, uh, Isaiah's saying, all these things that, that Moses said have all come about, all these things that I've said. Remember when I told you that the Assyrian army would not come into Jerusalem, not even shoot an arrow into it? That all happened. It's all fulfilled. Who can do that? Can your gods do that? Can your religion do that? That's his, that's his case. No, they can't. Verse 23, you declare the things that are going to come afterward. Tell us what's going to happen. You can't do it. Look at verse 26. Our God has declared everything that's going to happen from the beginning. He knows the end from the beginning. Who can do that? But God himself. He knows the end from the beginning. He has declared it, and it will happen. Verse 28. When I look, there is no one. There's no one else, there's no other idol, there's no other person that can do what God can do. Verse 29, here's, here's the verdict. All idols are false. Their works are worthless. Their images are wind and emptiness. They can't do anything. And he goes on in uh, chapter 42 with the same argument. Uh, and in uh, verse 8, look at chapter 42, verse 8. He's, God says through Isaiah, I am the Lord. Singular, there is no other. That is my name. And by the way, uh, Lord is our um, uh, translation of Yahweh, which is that name that, if you're from East Texas, you say Jehovah. Um, which is an English way to say Yahweh. Uh, but uh, Yahweh was that name that God gave Israel, a special covenant name between him and Israel. So this is the God of Israel, is my point. This is just not some God, any God. This is the God of Israel, the one and only. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, and I will not give my glory to anything else, to another. I will not give my glory to another. I will not, nor my praise to graven images. I declare new things. I tell you the future and what's going to happen. Okay? Uh, then he goes on to say that there's going to be judgment upon them for turning to idolatry. All right? Uh, and in chapter 43, uh, more of the same, another courtroom scene, uh, verse 8, chapter 43, 8. Bring out the people. Let's hear their story. Gather the nations together, you see. Give us the evidence. And he lays out a case against idolatry there in that chapter. Uh, and then 44, chapter 44 is really where I want to take you and spend the last 10 minutes in. He goes on in chapter 44, the same line of thought. This is all, remember, in, in the original, there's no chapter divisions. Everything just is one lengthy uh, discussion. So it, it's all connected. Uh, and he says, now listen, O Jacob. In other words, 
the uh, Jerusalem. Um, verse 6, skip to verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, the Alpha and the Omega. There is no God besides me. I mean, think about it. Who is like me? No one. Nothing. Let him proclaim it and declare it. Can't do it. Uh, let him recount it to me in order. Tell me the things that are going to happen. You can't do it. Let them declare the things that are coming that are going to happen. Can't do it. So verse 9. This is a great satire about idolatry. Makes fun of people who worship idols, and for good reason. You should get a laugh out of this. Those who fashion a graven image, an idol, those who actually like take wood or metal or stone and carve one out, they fashion a graven image or all of them futile. And their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? In other words, who does this and, and what, are, what are they like? Verse 11, behold, all his companions will be put to shame for the craftsmen themselves are just men. So you go and buy an idol and it will put you to shame because what have you done? The guy that sold it to you is just a man. The guy who made it is just a man like you. Or mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. Look what they do. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool. So he makes his tools, hammer, a chisel, whatever. And he does his work over the coals. So he takes the metal object and heats it up. And then he carves on it and beats on it. He gets hungry and his strength fails. So this guy who's supposed to be so great that's making this idol, he gets tired and hungry and thirsty. Do you think God gets tired, hungry, and thirsty? <laughs> no, but this guy does. Another guy takes wood and carves an idol out of the wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with a compass. Takes great care to make this and makes it into the form of a man. What has he done? He goes out and cuts down a tree. <laughs> a tree that God grew up. He cuts down a tree. He takes part of the tree, and he uses it for firewood to keep himself warm. Takes another part of it and builds himself a stool to sit on. And then what's left of the wood he makes an idol. Are you kidding me? It becomes, the tree, the wood, becomes something for a man to burn, so he takes one of them and warms himself. He makes a fire to bake bread. He makes a, then he makes, with the rest, a god and worships it. He makes a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it, it burns in the fire. And over this half, he eats meat as he roasts his roast. And he's satisfied. And he says, oh, yeah, the fire, I'm warm. But the rest of it, he makes into a god, a graven image, and he worships it. What an idiot 
Verse 18. Again, the, the interpreter, the translator translated it. They don't know, but literally it says, what an idiot. <laughs> Their eyes are closed. They cannot see. Their hearts are hardened. They can't comprehend. And they say stupid stuff like I've burned half of it in the fire, I baked bread over the coals, I roast meat over it, then I make the rest into an abomination, and then I fall down and worship a block of wood. Good night. He has a deceived heart. So what's the application, verse 21 and 22? Remember. Wake up. Remember these things. Remember this warning. Remember the truth about who is God and God alone. And then the end of verse 22, secondly, return. Come back. It's not too late. The rich young ruler during Jesus' time could have come back. As long as he was living, he could have come back. Return to me. Give up your idol and follow Christ. Come back. It's never too late. So in conclusion, I have something for you. What's this? The almighty dollar. It's what we work and slave and grind it out every day and deceive our fellow man on a constant basis. For this, this is life's quest right here. The sweat of your brow for this. And what is this? This is the same thing he was talking about. This is a piece of paper and cotton. This is made up of cotton and paper. What, what was it originally? A tree. A plant and a tree. Unbelievable. Only by chance this piece of paper became a dollar and not a piece of tissue paper that you blow your nose in. The X-rated version is you take toilet paper. I won't go there. Only by chance. This is here and not there. It was once a tree. Part of it was used to make lumber, part to make a fire. Both the dollar and the idol are in reality just for part of the creation. Materialism is nothing but a creation of man. Can it bring forgiveness? Can it atone for sin? Can this atone for sin? No. However, the heart of the gospel is that Christ brings forgiveness. Christ has atoned for sin. Faith in anything else is foolish. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with Isaiah's warning. It's so powerful. The imagery is so great. We can't miss it. Lord, help us search our hearts for the danger of idolatry and make sure 
that you are the love of our life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.